Hello, everybody. I'm Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm here today with Dr. Roger Goldberg of Bay Area Retina and the California Pacific Medical Center. Roger, welcome back to Retina Synthesis. Great to be back on Retina Synthesis. Great to see you, Carmen. We're going to talk today about one of the most common macular disorders encountered, central serous retinopathy, uh, and look at its etiology, its demography, and various treatment modalities. What is central serous retinopathy? Is it really a retinopathy? Well, it's interesting because you're still using kind of the name. I think a lot of people still refer to it as it's actually a little bit easier to say, but I think most of us are actually calling it central serous chorioretinopathy because it's really probably a choroidopathy and the secondary impact is on the retina, you know, with, with the development of, you know, you know serous subretinal fluid in the macula, which is kind of ultimately what leads to the patient's uh, uh, symptoms. But, uh, it, you know, Duke Elder called it central serous retinopathy. Don Gass, you know, about 15 years later, redefined it as central serous chorioretinopathy. That kind of is the official name of the disease, but it is one of these diseases that has really defied easy classification. And I think that's one of the problems where it's been so difficult um, to kind of study central serous chorioretinopathy in a really systematic way, because, you know, there's active and inactive CSC. Active is when there's subretinal fluid present. Inactive is when there's no subretinal fluid present. There's acute and chronic, you know, acute CSC, you typically have one or just a few leaks. Um, they have that classic angiographic finding like an expansile dot or smokestack appearance on an FA. They tend not to really have much in the way of RPE and outer retinal changes. Um, and, and kind of by definition, it hasn't been there that long and it tends to go away typically in about three to four months on its own. But uh, even that definition of acute CSE can be problematic because um, oftentimes we don't know how long the fluid's been there for. Oftentimes we, you know, sometimes we call it persistent acute CSE when it really looks like acute, acute CSE, but it persists for longer than four months. And we know that up to 50% of these patients can recur. So sometimes we call it like relapsing acute CSE. Um, but in general, it's the acute variant when there aren't a lot of RPE changes um, present. And then the chronic form um, is the one I think, you know, we kind of tend to think of that one as like the more debilitating one, because again, the fluid's there for a long time. They get, you know, permanent RPE changes and outer retinal changes. They have many leaks on angiography. Although sometimes those leaks can actually be hard to detect because if there's a ton of RPE kind of wipeout and translucency, they can be hard to see. On an IC green, you see this kind of diffuse hyperpermeability. You often see these dilated um, uh, uh, choroid, deep choroidal veins, like those veins in, in Haller's layer of the choroid, the deeper choroid. You often see guttering on, on an autofluorescence image or on the angiogram and it has a worse visual prognosis, but even the acute CSC 
you know, where the fluid typically goes away, those patients, you know, we, we see these patients every day, they still complain about the quality of their vision. And it turns out when you look at the cone mosaics and the cone density, even in quote unquote resolved acute CSC, uh, there are permanent changes there uh, in their photoreceptors in the acute variant. In the chronic variant, of course, it can be much more, you know, visually disabling. Um, and there's just been some, you know, tons of great work on trying to define, like, what is the pathophysiology of this? And we know it's kind of, you know, it really is kind of primarily a choroidopathy with secondary effects at the level of the RPE, but they get uh, increased thickness of the choroid. It is one of these pachychoroid spectrum of diseases, dilated veins and Haller's layer, atrophy and ischemia of the choriocapillaris, capillaris, and dysregulation of choroidal blood flow. And then the RPE changes uh, are probably secondary to the choroidal dysfunction. Um, I think Rick Spade has done some really cool work looking at um, ICG angiography and showing kind of the vortex veins in these patients, um, which in a normal patient, they don't anastomose with each other. You know, there are four vortex veins in each of the uh, kind of four quadrants around the equator, and they don't anastomose with each other. And Rick has shown nicely in others that you get dilation of the vortex veins, this altered contour, almost like a kind of telangiectatic like contour, and they anastomose with each other, often in the macula. And so he's coined the name venous, uh, venous overload choroidopathy. And he went on actually to show, he did a great talk at Retina Society, showing that these patients have increased, not just choroidal thickness, scleral thickness, and the sclera is thickened, not just at the posterior pole, but at the equator, which is where the vortex veins exit the eye. Um, it turns out that he, he was using ultrasound. They have about a nearly double the scleral thickness, both, both at the equatorial sclera and the posterior sclera. And we know that central serous has this kind of overlap, at least in some patients, with uveal effusion syndrome, those short eyes with a thickened sclera. And we actually, we treat those by placing scleral windows, um, which is essentially kind of relieving some of that excess choroidal thickness. So, I, you know, there may be actually kind of a pathologic role of the sclera in this disease as well. So, you know, maybe one day instead of calling it central serous chorioretinopathy, we'll call it central serous sclerochorioretinopathy. Um, and then there's, you know, obviously kind of a lot of talk and debate about treatment. There have been lots of things tried and explored, whether it's traditional thermal laser, micropulse laser, um, uh, mineralocorticoid uh, antagonists like aplerinone, glucocorticoid antagonists like mifepristone, um, and, and photodynamic therapy. And I think kind of, you know, there, there have been you know, a few good, high quality randomized clinical trials here, a plerinone versus sham out of, uh, out of the United Kingdom, the VC trial, VICI, and um, a plerinone didn't work, um, no better than sham. And there has also been now uh, two trials, one can, uh, trying reduced uh, intensity PDT, 
versus micropulse and one reduced intensity PDT versus a plerinone. And in both of those, uh, pretty convincingly, PDT kind of quote unquote won. Um, so I think PDT is, is still uh, the gold standard uh, for the treatment of central serous chorioretinopathy. In general, for acute CSC, you know, I still kind of in general observe them, uh, but if they're highly symptomatic or high functioning and really need to get back to kind of full functioning uh, quickly, um, I will offer them therapy. If there is just kind of a little single leak outside the, you know, kind of within a disc diameter of the fovea, I will even offer them uh, traditional thermal laser or sometimes uh, in combination with micropulse laser. But I think PDT is, you know, if, if that doesn't work or while I'm obtaining authorization for PDT, I might try that. But but PDT, I think, is the gold standard for both acute and central uh, and chronic uh, central serous chorioretinopathy. Uh, what's the clinical setting in which we usually see this disorder? Uh, you're saying like kind of like the uh, type A personality, uh, you know, more commonly in men than women in their 40s or 50s, high stress. Uh, about 50% of the time they have a history of having used uh, steroids, you know, exogenous steroids, including things like nasal sprays or steroid creams, anything that might just kind of tilt the balance. But oftentimes they've had they're having like a stressful life event, you know, uh, that's um, impacting them. We also see an increased risk in patients who kind of have a you know overnight shift work or things that disrupt their circadian rhythms. Um, also, a risk factor probably increases some some basal you know cortisol levels just you know in a person's body too. So those things might trigger. Uh, uh, kind of activity in central serous chorioretinopathy. You can pregnancy. see it in patients with pituitary adenomas. Pituitary adenomas, yep. Um, do you think that early treatment is justified uh, given the abnormalities and cones that are observed in these eyes, even when the Snell and acuity is good? I, yeah, I think it's a um, it's it's always a conversation I have with my patients, and I'll say, you know, look, this is a this is a kind of acute central serous kind of. I still think the standard of care for acute CSC in the United States is observation. I tell them to de-stress um, if they're taking steroids. I ask them if it's possible to stop taking their steroids. Um, you know, get some guy trying to say, hey, get some light exercise again, not like something crazy where they're going to get stressed out about it, but just something to like almost like as a, st a stress relief type exercise, some light cardiovascular exercise, um, not like the weightlift, heavy weightlifting type exercise. Um, and if they're having problems sleeping, sometimes I've suggested things like melatonin or ashwagandha, which is like an herbal uh, supplement that helps people sleep sometimes. And just kind of like, and I'll, then I'll check them again in another, you know, six weeks, see how they're doing. Um, and then, you know, and again, kind of, I will have a conversation with them, but, um, you know, and it's, it's very individualized, but I certainly think it's reasonable, uh, to have that conversation. And if the patient's interested, um, to, you know, to offer treatment. What's the differential diagnosis? What are the other retinal disorders that can be confused with central serous? Sure. So I think, you know, uh, <laughs> 
particularly as these patients get older, it's often misdiagnosed as the wet form of macular degeneration, polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy. You can often get pigment epithelial detachments with associated subretinal fluid. And, um, you know, sometimes again, kind of, um, you know, in other kind of things that affect the RPE, you know, if the patient also has a thick choroid, people might be thinking it's central serous, but maybe for example, it's Elmeron toxicity and it's really RPE changes for a totally different reason. So, uh, but it kind of, in terms of PED with associated subretinal fluid, you're thinking AMD, CSC, or polypoidal. Um, what's the diagnostic workup of these patients? So I always get an OCT, of course, it's like, you know, it's, it's our workhorse in the clinic. Um, and then um, I think getting an FA um, and not all my, you know, we have like a lot of retina groups. We've got kind of a couple mothership offices and a bunch of satellites. I don't have ICG in every office, um, but I do like to get an FA to see where the leak is coming from um, to see if it might be amenable, for example, to um, uh, traditional thermal laser. If I'm going to offer treatment like PDT, I always get an ICG uh, with that to help guide my uh, treatment, you know, what spot size to use. So, uh, and then fundus autofluorescence can be helpful for looking at kind of changes in the RPE. And if you're trying to distinguish between, hey, is this acute? Is this chronic? Um, and what sort of permanent damage has been done? What about OCT angiography? Does this have a role? So actually, I think this is one of the few kind of true use cases for OCT and geography is looking for choroidal neovascular membranes, which can complicate about 20% of chronic CSC cases. And again, because the angiogram can often be indeterminate, um, you're like, oh, there's a lot of wipeout here. Is it really leaking? Um, and I think looking at an OCTA, particularly looking at the the B scan images with the flow overlay, where you can actually look like kind of inside that pigment epithelial detachment. Do I see blood flow in that PED? Because then it says to me, hey, that's actually a CNV there. Is there any role for a plurinone? I do not offer it. I think its effect is largely the placebo effect, which, which is a real effect and, you know, that placebo effect may help 20% of patients. And so, um, but I think a plurinone uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't help when you look across, you know, a placebo controlled trial. And you definitely have to monitor things like the potassium levels uh, and the creatinine. So you definitely have to do a little bit of monitoring for those patients for systemic uh, complications of a plurinone. Is there a role for anti-VEGF agents in treatment of central serous? Only if it has a secondary CNV. What about recurrent central serous? Of patients that present, how many of them will have recurrent disease? Uh, you know, as high as 50% of patients can have recurrent central serous. I do think the data again on PDT is that it, it does seem to reduce the risk of recurrence actually in a way that like other studies, like looking at thermal laser, where you probably get faster reduction of subretinal fluid, but you don't really impact the rate of recurrence. Um, I think PDT probably does re 
uh, reduce the rate of recurrence as well. So in, when you do PDT, you use the regular intravenous dose with reduced fluence? That's what I do, but you can also do half dose or half time. And I think they're all comparable. But like the protocol in our clinic is to do reduced fluence. But when I was a fellow uh, at one of the sites, they like to do half time. What's the typical spot size that you use? What do you include in the treatment area? So I really look kind of to the area of kind of diffuse hyperpermeability on the ICG um, and not just like on the OCT and look at like, well, what's the, what's the diameter of the serous retinal detachment? And I actually look at the ICG to help determine the spot size. How often is it bilateral? Uh, that's a great question. It can be bilateral. I actually find, you know, I think, Bilateral active is a little bit different, but you often see kind of what I might call form frust CSC uh, in the fellow eye where they have a thickened choroid. They have, you know, maybe some more subtle um, RPE changes, but they never have a, a bout of quote unquote active CSC. Well, Roger, thanks so much for reviewing this important disease. And uh, I think it's a great summary. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be here.